We want to begin by commending you. Uh, this week we sent out kind of a desperate plea. We had some children's classes in jeopardy of being canceled due to a lack of teachers. And about 10 minutes before the first hour, the last class was filled with teachers in typical North Wake fashion. And so uh, thank you for your belated servant spirit. We, we really uh, we do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, s- service is so much a part of being like Christ and yeah, we, we've structured our church so that there are great opportunities. There still are a few opportunities for this semester to serve in the lobby. I hope that if you're not engaged, you'll look those over. This morning, we want to continue our survey of the, the entire Bible this year. We, we've made it into the New Testament and are wading into a, different, a new kind of literature, letters that are written to churches, in, in this particular case, First and Second Corinthians. I first... Um, earnestly encountered the book of 1 Corinthians back in the late 80s uh, when one of my professors decided that it would be good for me to translate 1 Corinthians into English like it's never been done before, right? But you know, he was the professor I was doing. So I did this and, and uh, no, my, my translation has not and never will be published. But what it did do for me was it slowed me way down It made me think for a whole semester about that one book of the Bible, and it it showed me the body of Christ in a way that has captivated me ever since. Um, When I came to North Wake some 17 years ago, I, I first taught some highlights from the book of Luke so we could see who Christ was. Thought that would be a good thing for church to know. Um, Then we taught the book of Jonah so that we'd know how much lost people mattered to God. And then I knew that the next thing, one of the very first books in the first year I was here as pastor that I wanted to teach was 1 Corinthians, so we could see how beautiful is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians paints a stunning portrait, but oddly enough, it paints that portrait out of a church that's an absolute disaster. Uh, Why anybody would name their church, for instance, Corinth Baptist Church, I have no idea. I mean, it's fine that they do that, but Corinth was a wreck. Everything was wrong and a mess, and it's through Paul's corrective instruction that this beautiful portrait of the bride emerges. And my hope today is that together we'll we'll capture a fresh glimpse that will, will captivate all of us increasingly to love the body of Christ even the way our Savior Jesus does. So if you could welcome to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, and I'd like to pray for our time there this morning. Father, you, you so love the church. Demonstrated that by the sending of your Son on the cross. And we get distracted and the church becomes just a convenience or a commitment, um, some kind of club that we're a part of. No doubt you intended to be so much more in our own lives and hearts. Um, So this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of what it means to walk with you and to be your body. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, both 1st and 2nd Corinthians are letters written to a church that's located in southern Greece. You can see um, Corinth right in that area, right in there. 
It was along a key shipping channel, very busy, kind of almost a port city, lots of in and out travelers, and really a major, one of the major cities in Greece in the time of the New Testament. And the little line you see running all over the place is Paul's second missionary journey that we talked about when we looked at the book of Acts. And on that second missionary journey, you see that red line coming down through Corinth. And when Paul was there, he planted the church at Corinth. The church we're going to read about, these letters were written to, was started by none other than the Apostle Paul. Um, chapter 18 of Acts tells us about it. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth and he stayed there for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. So this church starts with the Apostle Paul investing a year and a half of his life. And they had other great leaders, people like Priscilla and Aquila, a fellow named Apollos. Some of the heavy hitters in the New Testament invested in Corinth. But in the course of as little as about three or four years, Paul writes this letter to a church in Corinth that's racked with division, sexual immorality, arrogance, and abuses of the Lord's Supper that were so severe that some of the people were dying in judgment. And all this happened in about three or four, four years. The letters of First and Second Corinthians are littered with problems, sins that the church had become embroiled in. And you read it and you wonder, how did a church founded by the Apostle Paul himself get so messed up in such a short time? And I ran across a saying that I think is a good explanation of that. A fellow named D.L. Moody was talking about the church by the analogy of a ship. And he said, the place for the ship is in the sea. But God help the ship if the sea gets into it. And the sea of Corinthian culture had gotten into the church at Corinth big time and had horribly, horribly damaged it. Um, Corinth was a city that in her points in her history was renowned as a city of immorality. The very name of the city became a byword for sexual immorality. Um, Gordon Fee, in his excellent commentary on 1 Corinthians, says that uh, 1 Corinthians was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was a big, corrupt, pagan, urban city. So think Corinth, think Vegas, and you'll have some idea of what Paul was dealing with and what was happening to the church. So Paul, because he loves this church that he founded, and because he's heard reports that it's gotten so wayward, has a series of interactions with them, and one of them is 1 Corinthians, and he writes with a series of correctives. Um, When I first taught 1 Corinthians, I described it as a file cabinet with five drawers. The first few chapters are about unity, then he writes about immorality in the church, then he writes about liberty, worship, and resurrection. And what I'd like to do today is uh, just pull open a couple, three of those drawers, let us look in and kind of self-reflect, how am I doing, how are we doing as the church today in those particular areas of concern? Now, the first one we want to look into is that first drawer of unity. And what I read in 1 Corinthians um, some 20 years ago 
rooted in me a deep commitment to form at North Wake a church that would be unified, that would be protected from division. And our leaders over the years have worked extraordinarily hard to protect the unity of the body of Christ at North Wake. I hope today, as you hear just a touch of Paul's teaching, you'll join me in committing never to allow yourself to be used to divide this body. Because it was a big problem in Corinth. Daniel already read some of these verses to us. In chapter 1 he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I will follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas or Peter, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? And notice how Paul now singles his supporters out and puts them in their place, an excellent example for leaders. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? See, the church was fracturing into groups loyal to certain leaders. Paul, Apollos, Peter, even some kind of Christ faction that was being divisively um, propagated. And there are several things, as you read it, that are going on. First of all, they were exalting men above Christ. It mattered more that you were in the Paul or Peter camp than that you were a follower of Christ. And that can happen today where we follow the teachings of men and our identity becomes not as a follower of Christ, but I am of Calvin or I am of Piper or Driscoll or Wright or Lederbach or Williams or McDaniel. Whoever you agree with, that becomes your identity. And if someone isn't in your little subset, we can scarcely embrace them as brothers or sisters in Christ. If someone disagrees with us theologically on minor points, that matters more than that they are brothers or sisters in Christ with us. And this is foolish. Paul would say, was Piper crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Lederbach? Get over it. We are Christians, Christians, followers of Jesus. He unites us, and we dare not let lesser allegiances divide us. Now, those differences are real, but they cannot be allowed to supersede that which is supreme, Christ, and the fact that we, unbelievably, are united in him as one body. So they were exalting men above Christ. And they were exalting themselves above their brothers and sisters. Uh, They thought their way was spiritually superior. Um, A kind of spiritual elitism was developing. And and this this is prevalent today just like it was 2,000 years ago. The idea that somehow I'm superior to those who are different from me or hold to a different position. And this catches you in all kinds of crazy places. And I've heard it over the years in places that boggle my mind. Um, People think they're superior because of the way they school their children. They think they're superior because of where they shop or will not shop. 
They think they're superior because of the way they prepare their food. I'm not kidding you. Or what they drive or will not drive. Spiritual elitism is a tremendous pitfall. Beware of exalting you where you think that you are wisest and your way is best. Beware of insisting that you get your way. What happens in the church for you when you don't get your way? You know, I can tell you as a pastor, it's very frustrating when you don't get your way. And it happens all the time by the grace of God. I don't get my way. What are you going to do with that when you don't get your way? When we don't play your music? Or we don't have your class? Or we don't handle our money your way? What are you going to do? Are you going to leave? Are you going to withdraw? Are you going to do an end around and just do it your way anyway? Let me help you with this um, danger of spiritual elitism and thinking that your way is spiritually superior. Everybody has it more together than you do. Okay? I'm serious. Everybody has it more together than you do. That's, that's what the New Testament tells us. You are the chief of sinners. Everybody in this room is better than and more important than you are. I am virtually quoting scripture with those teachings. Everybody has it more together than you do. Guess who the least important person in this room is? It's me. I am the least important person in this room. You want to know how I know that? Because the Bible tells me so. That's how I know. Um, Paul is so helpful in this way. The great apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul says, "I'm, I'm the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. You want to know why Paul thinks that he's the chief of sinners? Because I wasn't born yet. That's why Paul thinks he's the chief of sinners. Um, I hope you get a sense for how terribly divisive and how supremely foolish it would be to align yourself as a follower of any leader in a way that diminishes your bond with other believers in Christ. This is silly on its face. And horribly destructive in the church. Jesus was grieving about this the night before he went to the cross. In prayer before the Father, he says, Father, I in them, you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our mission hinges on the protection of the unity of the body of Christ. Don't mess with the unity of the body of Christ. Commit with me today. You will fight to protect it. You will give up your rights to protect the unity of the body of Christ. And you'll do that by keeping the main thing, the main thing. Paul goes on the next few verses. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. 
but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. Paul says, you know, the big deal, it's not who baptized you, who taught you, it's Christ, the cross, the gospel. That's the big deal. So this morning, before we close the first drawer in 1 Corinthians and move on, just self-reflect with me. Have you been divisive? Have you alienated someone in this room or this body? Are you not speaking to someone? Are you grumbling because you haven't gotten your way? Have you been proud or superior? Well, enough of that. Um, let's look in the second drawer. Okay, um, unity. Paul's initial concern. He moves then on to um, immorality or matters of purity and holiness that he's deeply concerned about for this church. Because in chapter five, he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud of it. Um, there was a kind of sexual immorality happening in the church that even the pagan culture in Corinth, renowned for its immorality, looked at and said, ooh, that's creepy. Okay. That's not right. There's just something not right about that. And the church, confusing empty-headed tolerance for accepting love, is proud of the fact that this guy's part of them. You know, we have those same kind of issues going on today. Tolerance and love are not the same thing. To confuse them, we do at the peril of the body of Christ as well as at the peril of the one who's ensnared in sin. Um, Watch what Paul says should have happened in Corinth in the next couple verses. He says, y'all are proud of this. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Remove him from the protective, uh, the protection of the fellowship. Put him out. so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? So Paul says, this is for the good of the offender. He says, put him out of your fellowship. Let Satan have at him for the good of his soul. God here is going to use Satan as a tool for good in the life of this man. That's sovereign. He also says, it's for the purity of Christ's church. He says, if you let a little bit of that sin in the body, accept it, say it's okay, it's going to spread like yeast through the whole batch of dough. And he also is concerned about the name of Christ. He says, look, the, the pagan culture is looking in and saying, the church is worse than we are. There's no difference. And this loving disciplinary act is part of a larger pattern presented and taught Uh, repeatedly in the New Testament 
for the way we are to deal with stubbornly unrepentant sinners in the body of Christ. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And so there's kind of these four phases of loving pursuit and protection that goes on. Private confrontation and then a private conference if needed to establish the legitimacy of the concern. A public announcement so that the whole church can be praying and pursuing. And then public exclusion where no longer do we engage them just for the purpose of fellowship but only for the purposes of restoration. And again, he says, this is an act of love and reconciling restoration for the one who's been so deeply ensnared in sin. And we are in the midst of this process. If you're part of North Wake, you know this with one of our own brothers. Um, and we are earnest about following as carefully as we can these processes because this is our greatest hope to help our brother be free from the snare that is so ravishing him. And next Sunday night, if you're part of North Wake, um, we need to explore this together at our corporate prayer time as you get instructions from us and as we pray together on behalf of our brother. So I do hope you'll mark that down. But I hope you get a sense from the extreme steps that Paul is advocating here how important it is that the church be pure, that we flee from immorality in a day where it's just one click away from us. Listen to more of the language that he uses. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually against his own, sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Let me challenge you to deal with these matters. Some of you are involved in these practices right now. Deal with it for your sake, for the sake of the body of Christ, and for his reputation and our mission. Don't ignore it anymore. The fact that you're here and we're talking about these things is grace from God. Make an appointment with me or one of our pastors or one of our elders or talk to your small group leader, but get help and get free. It is vital, Paul says, that the church be pure. Okay, let's, let's skip a drawer and look just into the worship section for a moment just because I want you to see what is my one of my personal favorite pictures 
of the church in the New Testament. I love what this teaches us about the church in this section. In, in chapter 12, starting in verse 4, Paul says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So there's this amazing unity, but in that unity is diversity. See, we're not supposed to look like each other. That's why not everybody at North Wake has a beard and wears a sweater vest. It's not how it works. Unity and diversity, radical diversity, um, coexist. Every single person, Paul says, is built by God for a special manifestation of the Spirit of God, designed by God in that way for common good. You, if you are a follower of Christ this morning, have a unique design by God whereby the Spirit of God is supposed to manifest Himself for the good of the people in this room. That's true of every single person here. Paul goes on and he says, To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between spirits. To another speaking in different kinds of tongues. To still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of the one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one. To each one. Just as he determines. God overlooks no one in this room. But he has put in you a special way to manifest the Spirit of God for the good of the people in this room. He says the body's a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they are one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we are all given the one Spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. See, he says there's no inferiority in this room. Nobody is inferior. No one. Your gifting matters. Your contribution matters. Don't diss your gift. Don't say, ah, oh, shucks, I don't matter. I don't have to be there. You matter. Paul said it under the inspiration of God. You have a unique contribution, a unique manifestation of the Spirit, each one. But not only does he say you don't, there's no inferior in this room, but there's also no superiority. He says don't diss somebody else's gift. Okay? He says the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, 
Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body. Think about that. God has combined the members of this body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. He goes on, and I love this description of the church. There should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Are you connected with the body such that that statement describes you? That when you suffer, we suffer. And when you rejoice, we rejoice. That's what you're built for. That's what you're bought for. Small groups at Northwake really help with that. Um, Today at 4 o'clock, we have a baptism. It's a beautiful opportunity to rejoice with those who rejoice. The baptism service is not just for those who are baptized. It's for the entire church to come and rejoice together um, as those rejoice and give their testimony. Um, Paul says, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. How is that shaping you? How is that shaping your time? How does it shape your relationships? How does it shape how you serve this body? Well, hang on to those those things because I want to change gears and move ahead and look at 2 Corinthians for just a few minutes. But I want you to remember what God's saying to you so that when we have time to respond at the close of the service, uh, you'll be able to do that. Well, after Paul writes this first letter, there's a flurry of interaction between he and the Corinthians. There are letters, there are visits, um, painful visits, and distressing letters, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Um, Some say that Paul made a total of three visits to the Corinthian church. And he wrote four letters, of which we have two preserved for us, First and Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians is likely the last one, and was written just a year or so after he wrote First Corinthians. And much of this second letter is a defense of Paul's apostleship and his gospel. There were people there who were belittling him, saying he was impotent and insignificant. And you pick up in chapter 11, some of that, when Paul says, I do not think I'm in the least inferior to those super apostles. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. So most of Second Corinthians is a defense of Paul's ministry and the gospel he shared with the Corinthian church. The first seven chapters are about that. Chapters 10 through 13 really are about that. They are given over to a defense of Paul's life, ministry, and message. Right in between are two chapters, chapters 8 and 9, that have a different focus. They urge generosity upon that church. Um, He says, 
in chapter 8, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches, churches where Paul had visited. Out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints, giving financially. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So he is inviting, he's praising the Macedonian churches and calling Corinth to be generous like them. Very poor churches who gave generously. And all I have to say to you is praise on this matter. I am so heartened by the generosity of Northwake. Um, a couple weeks ago, we took an offer to send, uh, offering to send um, the Kurdish translation of the Bible to the Kurds. We were stunned by your generosity. Every time we give you a chance to be generous, you blow us away. And I feel like Paul in those Macedonian churches. I had lunch with a pastor, another pastor in town the other day, and I'm sitting there... I'm not one to brag. I'm sitting there bragging about you and how wildly generous that that you are. Um, Excel still more. Um, I'm thrilled with the generosity that you show towards those in need and towards the work of God around the world. Um, But again, apart from these two chapters, Paul is in a defensive posture in 2 Corinthians. And one of his main defenses, interestingly enough, is his suffering. Um, over and over again he describes his suffering in 2 Corinthians he says we don't want you to be uninformed brothers this is chapter 1 about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia we're under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life if you've been there I want you to know that Paul's been there too And he says, indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. See, Paul says, I have suffered greatly and God has used it for my good to strengthen and purify my faith. Chapter 4, he says, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, fragile human bodies, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Paul says, my suffering is good for the church and good for the spread of the kingdom of God. In chapter 11, he's defending himself against those super apostles. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. He says, I have worked... And this is what a servant of Christ is, according to Paul. This is the mark. 
I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers." I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. See, sometimes we feel like when we suffer, it's evidence that God's not with us. Paul takes a totally different perspective. It is his suffering for the sake of Christ and that he persevered in following through that that evidences his faith and the authenticity of his ministry. When he says, here's my credentials as a servant of Christ, he says, look at how I have suffered for Christ. You know, it's interesting today, these um, same themes are cited as being evidence of spiritual authenticity. Health, wealth, and prosperity. But they have a totally different spin on them. Listen to these quotes from one of the pastor of one of the largest churches in our land and from his book, one of his books. In the introduction of that book, the reader is encouraged to dream, someday I'll earn more money and I won't have to worry about how to pay the bills. God wants to increase you financially, he says. Even if you come from an extremely successful family, God still wants you to go further. Get rid of that small-minded thinking and start thinking as God thinks. Think big. Think increase. Think abundance. Think more than enough. Many people settle for too little. I've gone as far in my career as I can go. I've hit the peak. I'll never make any more money than I'm making right now. Elsewhere, he says, Consequently, and I say this humbly, I've come to expect to be treated differently. I've learned to expect people to want to help me. My attitude is, I'm a child of the Most High God. My Father created the whole universe. He has crowned me with favor. Therefore, I can expect preferential treatment. I can expect people to go out of their way to want to help me. So today, some of the prominent voices in our land are saying, you know how my ministry is authentic? People love me, want to help me, and I'm very wealthy. I'm very prosperous. But Paul is saying, you want to know if I'm authentic? I've suffered for the gospel. I've been faithful to the gospel through that suffering. Very, very different. And this teaching is rampant on our TVs and in our bookstores and all over the place. It's not the absence of suffering, but that you suffer and how you suffer that marks authentic spirituality and Christian leadership. It is not prosperity, but sacrificial generosity that marks the real thing. Now, not all the voices, obviously, in our day have fallen into this error. There are others um, who sound a lot more like Paul. And as we close our time together today, I want you to hear one of those. And this excerpt comes from Pastor John Piper. I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it. Hatred. It is not the gospel. 
and it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message, your pigs won't die, your wife won't have miscarriages, you have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money and our time and our lives instead selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. And here's the reason it is so horrible. When was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never! They'll say, Jesus did you do that? Yeah, well, I'll take Jesus. That's idolatry. That's not the gospel. That's elevating gifts above giver. I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful is when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands like dead on the street. And you say, through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you and on earth? There's nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That makes God look glorious. As God, not as giver of cars or safety or health. Oh, how I pray that America would be purged of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, and that the Christian church would be marked by suffering for Christ. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him in the midst of loss, not prosperity. Father, have mercy on us. It's hard for us to believe that you really are enough for us. And every day we hear voices and read advertisements and see shiny things that tell us we need them. And we get confused. And we bow down in the wrong direction. And this morning when we step back and we hear the testimony of your servant Paul it all looks so foolish what we're a part of and so Father have mercy on us because we believe that you are enough for us and we believe that to suffer for your name's sake is an honor we believe that you have given to us so that we might be channels of blessing to those in need, to those who are yet to hear. Father, forgive us our confusion. Forgive us our selfishness. Forgive us our fears. Lord, raise up in this room a body of believers who will be one, who will be pure, 
who will love and value one another, who will suffer for the name of Christ and be wildly generous. God, if you, if you would do that in us, we would be thrilled. And that would be enough. God's been speaking to you this morning. I want to encourage you. you